0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of Lead Like You Give a Damn, where I speak with leaders and leadership experts who have cracked the code on leading with authenticity, purpose, and effectiveness. I'm your host, Dave McKeown, and my guest today is Tom Dawkins. Tom is a serial social entrepreneur and change maker focused on helping communities and companies to be more innovative, purposeful, and impactful. In this episode, we talk about the power of purpose the shifting landscape of social enterprise, and how building more meaning into your products will attract a lifelong community of customers. As always, make sure you're subscribed to get notified of each episode as it comes out. Let me know if you've got any questions or comments, and as always, please enjoy the show. Well, hey, Tom, thank you so much for being here with me today. How are you? Doing good, Dave. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about our conversation, Tom. Your resume and your list of achievements and experiences reads like the dating profile of the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> I mean, you've just done so much. It's incredible. But the thing that came through to me again and again as I was just doing some background reading on you is just this notion of being and helping change makers. And I'm, I'd just love to start there and just ask you, what does it mean to you to be a changemaker in the world? And what has brought you to this place in your life where you're going out and helping others do that
1: so what change making mean to me i guess it means be, thinking about the impacts of your actions beyond your immediate circumstance mm-hmm. and how those actions decisions contributions etc can affect the future for you know for your community nation world etc so that can take very many forms i think of change making kind of as a concept has been a catch-all for all mm-hmm. the different ways in which people could you know go about creating change you know within change making there's entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship and philanthropy and volunteering and, you know, local community activism and participation and even, you know, mindful consumption and mindful parenting, it Mm. can all come under that it's, you know, at the heart of that concept, I think, is is people simply believing that they have a role to play and that they can impact the world around them. So in some ways, the opposite of change making is, you know, kind of cynicism or fatalism, the idea right. that things just happen and there's nothing you can do about them, which is, of course, not true. Things do happen, but they, they happen as a result of decisions and actions. And my mission is to ensure that I guess the future that we create is a result of our, you know, more broadly collective, community-oriented decisions and actions, rather than just being for the benefit of a few. And, and I guess that idea of kind of empowering others and supporting their participating participation change making is something I've actually been working on. I guess, more or less my whole life. I mean, I was trying to decide how much of the story to dive into. But, you know, I was the fortunate recipient of, of I guess, some kind of youth leadership mm-hmm. opportunities in inverted commerce when I was a teenager. And in particular, I had an opportunity, I was on exchange for a year in the United States when I was 15, 16. And while I was there, I, I had the opportunity to attend an amazing event in San Francisco called the State of the World Forum. Mm-hmm. And so This is, you know, getting back a little bit now. i not as young as I used to be. And so it was a this this event took place in this interesting gap in world history, kind of in 20th century history, after the Cold War, but before we had figured out what we were now kind of aiming for as a global civilization. You know, the Cold War for the previous 50 years had been the defining goal of kind of West, you know, of the world, one way or another, been the, the defining frame within which everything happened. You couldn't talk about, you know, sustainability in the environment without talking about the Cold War. You couldn't talk about trade and uh, and equality without talking about the Cold War. You couldn't talk about war and peace, obviously, without talking about the Cold War. And then suddenly it was gone and people kind of didn't know, like there wasn't, for a while there was like no frame, no goal, no agreed objectives. And so there were a whole lot of conversations at that time that eventually turned into what became the millennial development goals and now the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. You might be familiar with the 17 sustainable development goals, you know, the world's to-do list to hopefully achieve by 2030. And so it was in this kind of awkward time where we didn't really have that, that agreed agenda and there were lots of conversations happening. And this was one of these kind of major conversations that brought together all these leaders from around the world. You know, Mikhail Gorbachev was there, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Tavo Mbeki, then vice president, later president of South Africa, seven Nobel Peace Prize winners. And then I think kind of late, and I imagine it as somewhat late in the organizing process, someone said, you know, well, if we're talking about the future, let's get some young people here. But they didn't have the, you know, the time, budget, maybe not the inclination or the commitment to do a global search for worthy young leaders. You know, they did what you do and what you should do, um, which is to partner. And so they partnered with the world's leading exchange student organization, AFS, to select from young people already conveniently located in America Mm -hmm. from a diversity of different countries. Now, if they had done a global search for young leaders there's no way I would have ended up there (laughs) I I wouldn't have even heard about it I mean how did anyone hear about anything in 1995 I don't really (laughs) even remember B, if I had heard about it I wouldn't have applied you know because it didn't sound like me up until that point you know I grew up in kind of an opinionated politically minded household I knew how to talk about things but I hadn't done anything I hadn't been active I didn't have a sense of purpose I wasn't a big contributor you know to the community I wasn't volunteering or doing anything like that so if I had heard about it I'm sure I wouldn't have gone well that's me they're looking for me and if I had applied I obviously wouldn't have been selected there must have been way more worthy you know young Australian leaders back then I still feel a little bit guilty that someone else probably should have been there instead of me but as a result of you know being in the right place at the right time I was selected to attend this event and I had this mind-blowing experience over five days of just meeting some of the most incredible people in the world meeting other you know amazing young people there were 32 of us from 28 countries and I guess what was so profound about that experience was so many important people wanted to were willing to listen to us you know we had we met Nobel Peace Prize laureates and Mikhail Gorbachev and you know very senior people in the UN and they they wanted to hear what we wanted to talk about and mm. our perspective. And and I think that's at the heart of all empowerment. It's all very well to have the courage to share your story, but someone's got to be willing to listen or else it's hard to feel like it really matters that you're truly empowered. And so I walked away from that experience with kind of this kind of really strong sense that I had to do something with my life now but you know we had been challenged while we were there that we the 32 of us represented you know three and a half billion young people on the planet you know the <laughs> average age of the world's population at least then i think slightly older now maybe is was 16. you know you represent literally the the, <laughs> av- the average hair. the average human i'm like whoa that's <laughs> a bit That's a bit crazy. And so walking away from that, I felt very empowered. I felt really activated for the first time around a sense of purpose and meaning that my generation had a really important role to play in figuring out this global agenda and driving towards, you know, sustainability and justice. I also had this strong sense that what I had just experienced was kind of how youth leadership in inverted commas tends to happen, which is that it's haphazard, tokenistic, and bias towards wealth because while mm. the 32 of us at that event had this surface diversity and this you know we did we were diverse in many ways you know we're boys and girls black and white from the first world and the third world every single one of us had parents who could afford to send us to America for a year and so literally what I've been doing ever since I was you know had that experience as a 16 year old is trying to figure out how could everyone have that opportunity how could everyone Mm -hmm. have that experience of knowing that their voice matters of having the opportunity and the confidence and the skills to share their story to express their ideas about the future they want and then hopefully to take action on those ideas and so you know this mission for me has you know kind of consumed my life now from asking a few kind of initial questions that I was curious about I founded three not-for-profits by the the time I finished university. The third of those, an organisation called VibeWire, I led for eight years, so that was what it did with my 20s for the most part. And that organisation is now 21 years old, so has continued successfully without me now for a long time. And then 10 years ago, after four years working in the US, I found to start some good. Mm. Obviously, and, and all these organisations have pursued that same fundamental goal in very different ways. You know, I've done everything from create a film festival, of, uh, you know, that toured around the country in, in mainstream cinemas of, of youth-made, issue-focused films, sent youth reporters out on the campaign. Trail traveling with our prime minister and opposition leader, and American listeners like the two presidential candidates traveling around with mm-hmm. them during an election reporting as 18-year-olds from what was happening, you know, beating in the press conferences, opened the first co-working space in Australia to provide a space and a hub for young entrepreneurial people who wanted to change the world. Uh, and obviously for the last 10 years, at Start some good focusing on both how we build platforms that help people share stories and raise money, but also how we equip people in terms of their capabilities and skills to leverage those platforms successfully.
0: You know, it's clear that there has been one consistent purpose and mission for you throughout all of that i'm curious to know what it is then i don't know as a subset of that purpose that makes you go oh i'm going to start a film festival and, Oh, i'm going to start a farmer's market and actually i'll start vibewire no i'm done with that i'm <laughs> going to move on to this. like why didn't you just go i'm going to start this one organization that's going to fulfill this one mission like just share with me a little bit about your journey through those various organizations yeah
1: i mean the farmers market is a theme camp at burning man so it's a little bit of a different a <laughs> <Right, laughs> little bit of a different um vibe there but it does speak to that i don't just like turning up to things i like creating you know i feel like i'm an you know, organizer by trade i'm good at bringing mm. people together and identifying the goals we want to achieve often unrealistic and over ambitious goals mm. and then doing our buddy best to get there <laughs> You know, the reason I moved on from, I mean, so a lot of the things I described were all under the vibe, why hood? And you'll see it, same thing has happened with Start Some Good, which is kind of for better or for worse. I, you know, we we run a lot of entrepreneurial programs. And one of the key lessons we often give is, you know, focus, try and get one thing right first. And, you know, I'm I'm a classic do what I say, don't do what I do. Kind of coach in that respect, because I'm actually terrible at that myself intensely curious i i love i'm probably a little bit too into the very early stages of new projects his favorite place is kind of shaping something up and articulating the goal and creating a team around that and figuring out how to make progress and so you know and I think also it comes down to kind of the nature of the mission that you were talking about before. That is, it's not so much about I have this one idea that I want to pursue. It's that my idea is that I want to hear everyone's ideas and I want right. to build platforms and opportunities for people to define what they think needs to happen and then equip them to, to, to make that happen. And so I would just say, I guess. A, that kind of, you end up, you know, like the film festival wasn't my idea. It was, you know, someone came forward and said, you know what we should do next, the film festival. And I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Great idea. Let's create a film festival. So I spent the next four years kind of co-founding a film festival with them. And so it's, it's kind of like, yeah, kind of an openness to new, new ideas, probably to light shiny object syndrome in terms of very, right. very excited about, how, you know, new ideas and how to make them happen. And so both my kind of major organizations that I've founded and led have become absurdly diversified, really, for the, for the scale we're at. You know, I was running, as you heard, film festivals and a co-working space and doing fee-for-service work with large organizations to help kind of run youth consultative processes and doing kind of youth-led journalism and experimenting with technology and, you know, things that would now be called virtual summits, but in 2005, using, you know, like as a Q and so on. And so, and same thing with Good. you know, we began as a crowdfunding platform, but since then we've created Impact Accelerators for corporate partners in the UN. We, we run our own social enterprise design course. We're about to launch a crowd lending platform to complement the kind of pre-sale philanthropy platform. We already have, you know, we have a community of entrepreneurs. So I think, you know, if your mission is to kind of help people make their own ideas happen and to start some good, a big part of that, you know, our mission is to increase the pace of innovation for change specifically, which we do by reducing the barriers for emerging entrepreneurs and new leaders and new ideas to kind of emerge, be designed, be tested, launched, hopefully grow you and so if your mission is kind of increased pace of innovation it's hard to be completely closed about how you do that because mm-hmm. you know there's a certain pressure to kind of constantly innovate in how you support innovation as the world changes so that is one of my i don't know strengths and weaknesses i would say as an entrepreneur i'm, I'm good at getting things started but if, if i'm not careful you know if people don't really restrain this is like even as a result of my, my team holding me back from probably half the things I wanted to do at one point or another, but we've still ended up with, you know, kind of four or five key projects and approaches been balanced across our little team. In terms of your question about why I left VibeWire specifically, a big part of that was also just I aged out. I was very purist at the time. The organisation has is less purist about this now than it was when I was there, but I was very purist about Start Some Good had to be completely owned and run and managed by the community it sought to serve, which was Young Changemakers under mm-hmm. 30. So our focus was 18 to 30. And so I left officially on my 29th birthday, because at the time, literally, no, we had, you know, it's kind of, it's unusual with youth organizations, but it's a common model with, you know, women's organizations are allowed to discriminate in favor of women in their leadership. Mm. You know, indigenous organizations have exemptions from the anti-discrimination act they can preference indigenous staff to work but people hardly ever do that with youth organizations actually right and so we had a formal exemption and they allowed us like those other organizations to kind of discriminate in favor of, of our community of the people we want to serve and so up until when i left every staff member had to fit within that you know that demographic every board member was in that demographic we had kind of a, a side advisory board we, that we called the council of elders slightly jokingly which is Cool people over 30 who are <laughs> helping us now the challenge of that is of course it builds in instability you know someone mm-hmm. like me kind of gets to a certain point and then passes over to someone who's much less experienced rather than kind of finding an equivalently experienced person or maybe a more experienced person to take the organization to the next level you kind of revert back to a much less experienced person right? right and so that naturally has had has proven to be very difficult over the years since the organization has survived which is incredible you know most don't but certainly it's it's shrunk down a little bit you know it, at the point at which i left we had offices in three states these days it's very heavily based in sydney around that co-working space that we opened, mm. which of course today is the longest continuously operating co-working space in australia
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I
1: think just for my own peace of mind, I feel like I had been forced into things, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, classic entrepreneur that I've been told what to do. And so I think for me, I didn't want to kind of hit 30 and feel like I was forced out by a rule. Right. About 29. That's, you know, that, that's me doing it. That's me making my own timing decisions, but, but it felt like time, you know, a year out from when I had been forced would be forced and I, and I was eight easy and I was pretty burnt out as well to be completely honest I was just really right. exhausted that had been a pretty 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 epic eight years and I was just so tired I needed to take six months off more or less which I did after that before landing in the US working for Ashoka for a couple of years
0: makes a lot of sense do you find that in the world of social enterprise it does slant heavily towards younger more idealistic folks that are trying to move the needle there or is there more of a spread across backgrounds
1: there is much more of a spread i mean i think it's a much more broadly based kind of movement than just young people there's lots of young people as well i mean i think it's interesting when i was you know kind of a full-time youth activist and and organizer i used to be very frustrated about kind of people who were label generations, certain characteristics and so on. Because mm. you know, of course it's, it's never all that accurate. <laughs> generations are right. diverse. But there is something, you know, but but what is true is that and people would often talk about generations as if these kind of changes they're observing were somehow inherent to the generation. Like I remember when I was you know entering the workforce post-university, there's a lot of talk about young people who don't have the same sense of commitment to their employers. They don't stick around for very long. La, mm-hmm. la, and people would talk about this as if it was something like inherent in my generation that we just kind of came out differently in terms of All our right. relationship with work and of course that's absurd people just grow up into the cultural context in which they live and the reason my generation had much lower kind of sense of I guess loyalty to employers was because for the previous 10 years employers had lost their loyalty to their employees I'm getting that the wrong way around but I think you know what I mean and so yeah. we grew up into a generation that simply didn't have the same dynamic around long you know Spend 25 years with a company, get a gold watch, but but that wasn't because of the generation. It was that the generation was growing up in this new context, and therefore reflected changes that were happening more broadly. Most right. same thing, I think, with social entrepreneurship and purpose. You see that reflected very heavily in young entrepreneurs. You know, if you go to, I often talk to you know university entrepreneurship courses and programs and so on, and it's always striking to me that if you get a group of university entrepreneurs in a program that doesn't have a social focus, that is just like the entrepreneurial students. But you discover mm-hmm. that seventy percent of them can articulate a, a purpose based mission anyway, that it's you know, kind of has become the norm that people I think are thinking about, entrepreneurial people are thinking most of them, beyond just personal wealth, you know, creation into broader issues around, you know, what's the impact they're creating, what's the kind of world they want to live in, what's the legacy they want to leave behind, et cetera. But I think that's, again, that's a reflection that you see in young people. It's not that it's exclusive to young people. And certainly in our programs, we actually get the founders we work with on average are quite a bit older than you might be. Now, probably that's a result of our programs tend to either be somewhat, you know, pay to play, like people pay their own, pla- you know, people buy their own place into something like our Good Hustle program, which is a 10 week social enterprise design course, right. or or it tends to be sponsored or funded by a partner or a government or, or philanthropy part, in which case it's quite selective. Mm. And it, and so in both cases, we tend to see more, I don't know, like, mid 20s to mid 40s or something being the core often people who have kind of taken a few, st- you know, made a few a little bit of progress in their career, they have some skills, they have developed insights that they are confident about and they're now ready to make a commitment to making that happen and of course you know thanks to those experience and insights their ideas are strong enough and compelling enough that they tend to get selected in those more competitive processes
0: i think it is funny i think that there is a just a misconception in general that you know successful businesses are started by college dropouts you know and that's because we've got four or five stories of that happening but you know even in the for-profit world the majority of organizations or businesses that are started that are successful or actually start with people that are a little bit uh, further along in their career, because there's a degree of experience and knowledge and lessons that have been learned as a result of that. Not that I'm I, in any way discouraging of any young person wanting out to go out and do that, but no. I, I think I mean, often how you it,
1: develop those, that experience. Like, I, I think you're exactly right. This is hard stuff. So you know, right. people do sometimes nail mm-hmm. it on the first try you know, like a Zuckerberg, song. although I think to be honest, Zuckerberg's lack of experience often shows in the way in which Facebook, obviously super successful business, but, but I think, you know, has some real flaws around their social purpose and impact that does actually speak to the kind of lack of experience, naivety and limited perspective yeah. of the, you know, ivory university dropout founder class For sure. there, but, um, but yeah, I think most successful businesses are founded by people that are older but how did those people get to a position where they could found a successful business? Often by trying things earlier, not waiting, until, right. not waiting until they're 40 to start their first company, but, you know, been willing to go through, you know, some trials, some trial and error, been willing to give it a go, been willing to fail and then come back again. And often on the you know second or third attempt, it all comes together.
0: Uh, yeah, for, for, for sure. It's funny, you said 70% or so of the folks in those classes were able to articulate a, a purpose that they're f- following. And, and it's something that in the last five or 10 years has just been the drumbeat of leadership, even if not entrepreneurship, but Mm -hmm. what's your purpose and what's your passion and, you know, find your purpose and find your passion. And sometimes I think we overdo it a little bit, particularly for folks that are maybe working their way through a career in an organization Mm -hmm. that, you know, that they probably enjoy it. They get behind the purpose of the organization, but they're not sitting, they're not waking up every day saying, you know what, this is absolutely my life's a passion and purpose to yep. do this some people just quite frankly can't articulate that and i guess i'm wondering do you think are we hitting the point of you know purpose fatigue that we might need to start finding something else to be our rallying cry that's a really
1: interesting question i'm not sure i mean i think people get sick of certain language you know and, and discourse in a way I, that's separate perhaps to the the really underlying kind of cultural trend i mean i think this right i think this desire for purpose this desire to feel like our lives are meaningful is a really fundamental one, but like, mm-hmm. but when I say fundamental, I don't mean like it's in again inherent in human nature per se, it's actually kind of newish. This idea mm. that each of our lives has meaning and, and makes an impact. People didn't really used to believe in change, change wasn't actually mm-hmm. kind of like a concept that had that meant much for most right. of human history because change didn't really occur on the speed of a human lifetime. 500 years ago, if I was born in a French village and my father was a blacksmith, I was 99% likely to spend my whole life in that village or maybe an adjacent village if I was really adventurous and to become a blacksmith. Right. And of course, if I'd been born a girl, then I was gonna get married off, probably with no, you know, with very little say. In the person I was getting married to and I was gonna spend my whole life in that village and and raise kids. If my husband was a blacksmith, they might become blacksmith, you know, and mm-hmm. and, so I, and this and this is, you know, in some parts of the world this is still I guess how it is, but, but increasingly few. And so I think there's this funny thing that's happened as the world, has change has accelerated. You know, I think kind of one of the most obvious and interesting facets of the world today is simply the, you know, one of the most important changes is the pace of change. That can feel overwhelming, but I actually think it's done this counterintuitive thing, which is democratized the idea of change. Back 500 years ago, when nothing much changed, it's hard to think that you were suddenly going to bring about significant changes because you, you don't really have examples of that. You can't really see what mm. it looks like. You know changes were brought about by kind of great people of history in the classic idea you know revolutionaries and emperors and prophets and mad people and inventors and you know significant specific individuals doing major things that moved the world in a dramatic way but now i think it's kind of like change has become the you know, the water we're all swimming in. People grow up now with an expectation that things will change. I think very few of us think that kind of work will feel the same as it does now, that our education system will be exactly the same. We hope it won't be. And so I think when change is suddenly something that is happening kind of every day all around you, and God, never more so than the last couple of years with COVID and other types of disruption, I think people realize that all these individual decisions you make are part of that current of change. You know, who you choose to work for, the companies you choose to found, who you choose, you know, the products you choose to buy and how you Just live your life. And so I think that where once we used to, I think, kind of bifurcate personal need and community focus, that we'd kind of go to work nine to five in order to satisfy our personal needs, and then we'd kind of do community at other times. We might be part of a church community on Sundays, or maybe we're, you know, part of a union or an activist group. And that would take place in a very specific kind of time and place that, you know. Wednesday evenings is when I go do community as part of an amnesty group or Sundays when I do community as part of of a church community or often the end of my career is when I do community when it's time to give back once I've you know built wealth and success and prominence you reach a time that you want to give back and you know you still hear that with kind of older leaders I'm on a couple of non-profit boards and on one of them I'm somehow still the youngest person there it's kind of nice to have one place in my life where I'm still the young person (laughs) despite the grey beard because it's you know because it's a fairly auspicious board you know Know, the more auspicious the organization the more senior these people tend to be and so there's a bunch of people on that board who are a handful that are you know senior academic leaders and business leaders and so on and you know I've chatted to them obviously around oh why did you decide to get involved and, and you still hear kind of you know words to the effect of i've been pretty successful in life and i felt like it was time to give back mm-hmm. and i think one of the things that's changed most profoundly so there's a long answer to your question is this idea of when is time to give back That even, you know, our parents' generations, I think, were still stuck very much in a mindset of time and place to give back. Uh, There's a certain time in your career when it comes time to give back. There's a certain maybe time in the week when you do community activities. Whereas I think the younger generations no longer think in terms of time to give back. They think in terms of alignment. What are my values and how do I live them today? And that's where you start to see purpose creep into all the other parts of our society. That people are now looking for purpose more and more, according to, you know, all the research, more and more graduates and people entering the workforce want obviously they want the people have always wanted you know a great boss and an interesting work and career progression and good pay but they increasingly also want a sense of purpose a sense mm. that the company exists to do something useful for the world other than just generate wealth increasingly when people are buying products they want all the things people have always wanted when they buy products they want you know delicious food and attractive clothes and good experiences but they want them to also be good for the world and to reflect their values and principles and so i think that's kind of in some ways the most profound change and that We may get sick of the language around purpose, but I think that underlying kind of cultural trend is really profound and is here to stay, whatever we kind of choose, however we choose to talk about it, whatever we choose to label it.
0: And do you think the world is trending towards a place where, I don't want to say acceptance because that's not what I mean, maybe the ability to impact change in a profound way from a social enterprise way is accelerating, or we might almost be in a battle for the soul of our species in terms of like the speed at which we are pushing for change versus mm-hmm. the forces that are loud and have a lot of power that are yep. perhaps preventing some of those changes. And some days I wake up and feel like, gosh, we might not win that battle. Like, yeah, the, yeah. you know, those forces that be may well mm-hmm. suffocate all of this. What's your perspective?
1: Oh, uh, look, I have, I think anyone, you know, if you don't have those days, you're not paying attention. Right. I think fund- <laughs> fundamentally, like if you don't have the occasional crisis of confidence and oh my God, what are, what's happening here and where are we going? When we're going to make it, you're definitely like, yeah. I hear you on that. I think I'm in the really fortunate position that the work I do exposes me to social entrepreneurs every day. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what is a social entrepreneur? Someone who's getting on with that it. fundamentally. Mm-hmm. It's someone who's using the resources they have to create the impact, you know, to create the best impact they can. Not waiting around for someone else to do it. Not mm-hmm. not waiting for government to do the right thing. But, you know, using whatever tools are at, and assets are at our disposal to to do the work that's needed. And so that keeps me really optimistic. I mean, I hope most days on good days because I know that while, you know, If you turn on the news, there's a lot of kind of scary trends and things happening, but Kind of under the news, behind the news, there's so many people of you know passion and intelligence and commitment who are working hard to make real practical changes. But I do also think there's only so far we can go with entrepreneurship as a tool set. It's why I'm an you know, I'm I'm not kind of a purist that social enterprise is the only way to change the world, nonprofits the only way to change the world. I, I think you need every, you need all of it. You need mm-hmm. kind of business focused approaches, you need traditional charity and community focused approaches, and you need government and activism as well. You need activism and you know political participation to force governments. No one social enterprise, no matter how how successful and how far, it, you know, how big it scales and how much good it does can on its own change the system. At a certain point, we do need, you know, politics is the mechanism by which we set the rules of the game in our societies. And so through politics, we need to also focus on changing some of the rules of that game. And so where I I think in terms of, not to get too meta, but I think in terms of kind of four phases of social enterprise kind of orient you with with where I think we are and where, where we're going, the first phase was what I call the niche, And that's, you know, social enterprises are not new. They've been around for a really long time, but until recently, depending on, you know, which report you read and how you measured it, they were, the ethical consumer was a very definite was a very definite niche within the market, you know, it's kind of 10 to 15% of consumers, it was thought. And what that looked like was people willing to sacrifice to do the right thing. They would pay more, go out of their way, put up with less. So what that kind of looked like in my life might be, you know, I used to shop at a kind of organic ethical supermarket. Now it, it involved, you know, it was kind of a hassle. Yeah, You don't you know, have to go out of the way to this particular shop. It was more expensive than the mainstream and, you know, couldn't get everything there. So you'd do a partial shop and still need to go to another, you know, mm. a more mainstream supermarket to do the rest of it. Phase two is what I call competitive advantage. And that's where social enterprises are leveraging the increasing and growing power of purpose in the marketplace to attract great staff, to inspire customers, to inspire, by sharing, you know, and the most efficient marketing there is, is inspiring other people to share your story for you through social media. And social enterprises have an inherent advantage in this kind of socially connected world, because their stories are automatically more interesting then, you know, I always think the great example of this, are you familiar with Who Gives a Crap? The toilet paper company? Mm-mm. So they one of, you know, they're one of the most prominent social enterprises in Australia. They're, you know, they're a toilet paper company and they give 50% of their profits to mostly, I think, water focused projects in the developing world, sanitation and so on. And so I think that's a classic example of like who on earth would ever share a photo on Instagram of their toilet paper? And no one. <laughs> right? And the answer is no one except people who buy Who Gives a Crap. Those people love, myself included, love sharing pictures of the toilet paper. Why is that? Not because literally it has more storage inside it it literally has Mm. more meaning if I just share a a picture of like you know my Kleenex toilet paper or whatever what am I saying I'm saying hey I use toilet paper good story Tom if you share a photo of who gives a crap you're not just saying I use toilet paper you're saying I'm a conscious consumer I care about it I want a more equal world so that exact same photo literally says more and so that's why social enterprises are better adapted to today's kind of communication and marketing world and that's one of the reasons, along with, you know, recruitment and retention and other things, advantages that smart companies can derive through their purpose, um, mm-hmm. is, is helping win mainstream market share. So what that looks like is I can now go to the main supermarket and I can find lots of great social enterprise products on those shelves, priced competitively with all the other products, delivering all the same outcomes I want, plus being better for the world. But again, that can only get so far and to, because to get to phase three, which is what I call systemic advantage, we need to change some of the rules of the game. And that involves getting smarter as a society about how we actually price things, I think. Like I'm a big Mm believer in capitalism. I think you know capitalism is an amazing kind of system for moving stuff around and getting it to where it's most needed. Not always. Don't 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 at me people. I know I'm a (laughs) I'm a I'm a (laughs) left-wing activist from way back in the day. There are big problems with the way it does that as well. But the biggest fundamental problem, I think, is that how capitalism is meant to work is that things cost what they cost. And then Mm -hmm. as individuals, we decide, are we willing to pay that cost? And the problem at the moment is that things don't cost what they really cost right because we build a system whereby companies derive all the positive value from a product and avoid most of the negative externalities the cost of pollution diabetes you know carbon impacts climate changes etc and so in order for capitalism to work as an efficient functioning machine to distribute goods and services where they are needed those goods and services need to cost what they really cost and so that has to require a price on carbon and a whole bunch of other smarter pricing mechanisms that actually inbuild the real cost of things mm-hmm. and so if 20 years you know imagine a world 20 years from now where petrol costs four times as much five times as much six times as much. most of us will switch to electric cars like i don't, right. i don't care that much about internal combustion engines i have no particular commitment to driving a you know fossil fuel based car for the rest of my life but right now i can't afford an electric car so the pricing mechanism right now doesn't you know kind of keeps me where I am but in 20 years you know as those cost bases change it'll, it'll become increasingly a no-brainer for most of us to like of course I'm going to buy an electric car who would want to, who would want to pay all that cost for petrol you know but maybe you're a you know you're a rev head as we say in Australia maybe you love you know muscle cars that's your thing that's your passion and so you still want to get together with your mates on the weekend and drive your v6s around and it's mm. going to have to pay $400 to fill up the tank with petrol and if that's worth it to you that's fine I don't care because you're actually covering the cost of the impact that creating most of us won't want to keep paying that but if you do that's fine just like some people keep horses horses are expensive but people love it and so but to get there that's where to come back to your question that's where politics you know we can't enterprises on their own can't change the rules of the game only politics can do that so it's where we have to maintain that strong focus on you know actually kind of making some of those fundamental policy changes. When that happens, the whole world will change very rapidly, I think, in favour of more purposeful companies. And so I think where we are right now is a little bit like the car industry before the oil shock in 1973. Just a quick history lesson for your, for your listeners. In 73, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, massively reduced the supply of oil to the world, mm-hmm. which caused the price to skyrocket, which is what they were going for. Now, it just so happened that prior to that point, Japanese car manufacturers had already created much more fuel efficient cars, but they'd done so in order to, for their particular local market conditions, that Japan is the most, de- you know, the most dense country on earth, the most expensive space, which kind of trended towards smaller cars, which required smaller, more efficient engines. They didn't do that because they had a crystal ball and knew the oil shock was coming. They that because it was what the the local market needed but when the oil shock occurred suddenly the parameters for everyone else changed you know in terms of how much cars cost to run and that was when japanese car manufacturers rolled out around the world and captured massive market share globally rather than just locally and I think that's mm-hmm. right where we are with social enterprise that we're like the japanese car manufacturers inventing those new models and we're doing so mm-hmm. in order to win you know significant market share within specific niches more conscious you know more socially minded consumers etc but as soon as those rules change the companies that have already like what is social enterprise it's an enterprise that takes responsibility for its positive and negative outcome that is designed to reduce those negative externalities and increase positive externalities so when those negative externalities are priced in instantly Social enterprises will be much more competitive, will not only be better for the world, but in most cases, much cheaper rather than Mm. more expensive. And so while not everyone is willing to pay more to do the right thing, I think very few people will want to pay more to do the wrong thing once that pricing changes. And so that will get us into the third phase, which I call systemic advantage. And then that will rapidly lead to the fourth phase, which is the norm. Where being a social mm-hmm. enterprise, in fact, is no longer an advantage because it's become the mainstream. It's become the mm-hmm. new expectation. And so you won't get any bonus points of being like, we're a social enterprise. We we're like, yeah. And I heard you first time, you're an enterprise. Of course, right. as a business in the world, you think about the wider impacts of your work. Of course, you think about stakeholders beyond just shareholders, your staff, your community, the biosphere, future generations. I mean, who doesn't do those things? What a weird way to live. And so I think where you know it varies a little bit by industry. I've shared this model with a lot of people, and it's always interesting to see where they think their particular enterprise or their particular sector is. In mm. some cases, people think they're already, you know, in renewables and in some spaces that they're already pushing into phase three for their particular niche. Some others still feel like they're in phase one, still very much a, a small definitive niche. Most, I think, think they're in phase two, which is this competitive advantage, which is kind of up to individual enterprises and entrepreneurs to leverage the advantages, the real business advantages that that having a, a real purpose and making a real impact give you in order to build a great business.
0: Yeah, well, you are definitely at the spearhead of making that push towards making it the norm. Where can folks find out more about you and all of the great work you do, Tom?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. I mean, I would love people to connect I mean, if they want to connect with me personally, the two kind of social platforms that I'm pretty active on are LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can look me up on LinkedIn. Tom Dawkins starts some good. We'll get me at the top of your search result. And then on Twitter, I'm Tom JD. In terms of start some good, you can find us everywhere as Start Some Good, like Facebook slash, Instagram slash, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can also, of course, check out our crowdfunding platform at startsomegood.com. We're just about to launch a new crowd lending platform at lendforgood.com.au, and that's L-E-N-D-F-O-R e not the um, word, not the numeral. And if you're interested if yourself in, you know, you have ideas that you think could be a social enterprise, but you really want to shape those up into a practical plan based on, you know, 10 years of learning about what it takes to get a social enterprise concept launch ready, I'd invite you to check out our Good Hustle Social Enterprise Design Program, which is a 10-week group-based course that I lead, that I host myself. And the next cohort kicks off in mid-November. And the URL is goodhustle.online.
0: Awesome. We will be sure to put all of those in the show notes. Tom, thank you so much for being here with me today, sharing your path, your journey, and the leadership lessons along the way. Really appreciate it, Tom.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. It's been
0: fun. Thanks for listening to Lead Like You Give a Damn. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend, subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about me, the show or the work that I do, you can go to DaveMcKeown.com and I'll see you next time.